You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, hey guys, let's celebrate marriage, amen? You know, God designed us to belong to each other, and uh, that was a slideshow of a lot of folks that have been in my neighborhood group over the years. And, you know, we can all relate to that. And, you know, when we take those pictures and we see the beautiful family, we think at times, how in the world can we drift apart in seasons and times in our marriage? And this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, what it means to really uh, strengthen our marriage. And we're going to be looking at eight great ways in which we can do that. We've been in a teaching series in the book of James. And... Uh, I invite you to be a part of that next week. But this morning, I wanted to slow down and just say, man, God has designed us, literally. His plan for humanity is that we come together and we build families. And when we do that in marriage, it reflects the very gospel of Jesus Christ, that His unending love, His uh, faithful covenant commitment to His spouse, which is the church, and, and he models that. And here's what I want to tell you this morning is that you belong together. And so many times we can drift apart and kind of come into a spot where we feel like in our marriage we're emotionally drifting away. And we can settle into a rut of isolation. And we can feel nothing more than a roommate. You ever been there before? Go ahead and raise your hand. You're, come on, guys. I know it's true. You know, my wife and I have been married 13 years, and, um, you know, for us, it feels like we get into a cycle at times where we can get into arguments or we can get into fights or whatever, and it's like a, it's like a season. It's like a dark cloud rests over the rice hold for a little bit. You ever been there before? And you're like, what are we fighting about? And you come to find out, it's like, who spread the jelly on the toast or something? You know, it's something so dumb, and you're like, what are, what, why are we doing this? Uh, in marriage, the, the, the reality is, is there's a lot of signs of isolation. Before we get started in this morning and looking at God's Word, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about seven signs of isolation. First one would be maybe you, you, your spouse isn't listening to you anymore. Uh, Leslie said this to me a lot of times. She's like, Ryan, I'm talking to you. I'm trying to tell you what's going on in the family, but I'm wondering if you're listening to me. Um, you guys been there before? You know what I'm talking about? You can hear, but you're not really listening. Secondly, is your spouse doesn't care. Uh, some of you get to a spot where you just you, your spouse doesn't really care about the conflict that's going on. Uh, maybe it sounds like something like this. When you get into an argument and one spouse says, come on, we need to work this out. And the other spouse says, well, why, why can't we talk about this later? I'm tired. Let's go to bed. Or maybe you felt like, why try? Uh, every time we try to work something out, we really feel like, you know, it, it's, it doesn't, doesn't really help. Or you just have this attitude of resignation where you just kind of don't care. A third sign of isolation can be feeling like you can really never meet the expectations of your spouse. Let me tell you something. See, I was this strong, young Christian man when I first met Leslie. I'm still a strong Christian man, Lord willing. But I was a strong Christian man. She was a brand new Christian. And when she married me, she had all these expectations, man. 
But it didn't take long for like, maybe it was a couple weeks, and then like I fell off that horse. You know what I'm saying? Like she's like, what in the world? He's not perfect. Of course I'm not perfect. But there's a lot of expectations that can come along in the marriage, and your spouse can have really high expectations on either a husband or a wife. And I hear these kind of statements. I can't make them happy. I wish I could make them happy. I'm sorry I disappoint you all the time. Fourth sign of isolation can be feeling like uh, your husband may be detached from you. Or maybe you felt like you for, for maybe you felt like your wife is potentially just kind of going her own way. Or maybe the sixth sign of isolation is just refusing to cope with what's really wrong. And it's a constant blame. Or seventhly, that keeping the peace is more important than dealing with the conflict. If you've experienced any one of those things, and it's, a, it's an indication that if you haven't dealt with it, that you can easily slide into kind of the roommate marriage. What is a roommate marriage? Roommate marriages are those where one spouse or both spouses unintentionally drift emotionally away from God's plan for oneness in marriage and begin to feel isolated and alone. God intended that you belong to each other. Literally, he says, the Bible says that God bought you for a price, a high price through his son, Jesus Christ, and he gives us this gift of relationships in the context of marriage in which we're in marriage, we reflect and we reveal the very character and the nature of God in the gospel, the good news of Christ and how he's so faithful and loves his church and he forgives. And so in this this uh, message this morning, I want to encourage you, if you came here and you say, uh, I want you to understand that every single one of us, I've been, I'm a pastor, I've been married for 13 years, I've slipped into a cycle at times where I look over at my spouse and I'm like, I want to be more than a roommate. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's plan for marriage is that we become, we're, we're great lovers and we grow in our love and affection over the years, and we're great friends. What are eight great ways to strengthen your marriage and fight marital isolation and emotional drift? Number one would be this, is just plan on having fun together. Jesus says this, I've come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Literally, the word life there means that you keep on having it. The Christian is supposed to be the most joyous person in the world because all the present circumstances that he or she goes through, it's realized under the picture and the paradigm of God that, it's, that God uses all the trouble that we face to produce something good in us and that there's this thing called eternal life. And then in the Christian experience as a believer, we have the unlimited uh, resources of God to draw upon and to enjoy and experience his power and his presence in our marriage in every situation. And God created a beautiful creation in which we're to enjoy. Um, so plan on having fun together. That phrase life means that, that it's just keep on having fun. Abundantly means that in abundance. That God has an abundance. And the best thing about a marriage is a marriage that's based in friendship. Because, I mean, you and I, that we spend time with our spouses, guys, and we want to be lovers, yes, and we want to be friends, the advantage of focusing and building the, the marriage relationship on friendship is that you enjoy one another. 
You're not simply enduring. If you build the relationship simply on being the lover, I mean, you know, it's the, the romantic side of marriage is wonderful. It's like fuel for the fire that keeps things alive and vibrant. But friendship's the very foundation. And life's tough. Life is not fair. And you and I need to have fun together with our spouses because at the end of the day, you made a commitment when, we, when the marriage was there and you said, till death do we part. So this is your number one priority, guys, is your wife. Ladies, your number one priority in life for people priority is your husband. And having fun together is something that we've got to do more and more of. Jesus wants you to have fun. You know, Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. He shows up at a wedding. People are laughing. People are celebrating. They're having fun. They run out of wine. Jesus makes more wine, makes the best wine. Jesus brought life. Jesus calls us as Christians to uh, be people that are life-giving spirits in our marriages. Proverbs says this, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You know, when we as believers uh, take the time to just plan on having fun, it's like good medicine for the marriage. Uh, Leslie and I, we plan on having fun. We have what we call every Friday, we have fun Fridays. And so um, what that means is that we just intentionally take time. We go recreate together. We'll go mountain bike. We'll go hike. Um, We'll go play tennis. I don't play tennis, but she plays tennis. So I figure I'll play tennis. And uh, I look like a fool out there playing tennis. You know, I, I try to hit home runs over the fence. She's like, that's not how you play tennis. Um, but I have fun. Uh, when we first started dating, our whole, our whole relationship was based on friendship. And that is a key cornerstone. Uh, our, we have family values at the Rice household. It's faith, family, friends, and fun. And my dad taught me how to have fun. You know, my dad is a very hardworking man, kind of the American dream kind of uh, picture lifestyle, grew up in, in some uh, hardworking middle-class family, um, struggled in just to make ends meet, but they, they, they did it. They worked hard. My dad went to school, wanted to be a doctor, became a doctor, opened up his own clinic. We learned as of growing up, we learned what it meant to like literally live on rice and beans uh, so dad could, could make it through and build his company uh, to owning our own, our own home or car. I remember the first day I got my first pair of brand name tennis shoes, got some Chuck Taylor Converse. I thought I was cool. You know, I didn't have the Kmart knockoffs. And, you know, and, and so, you know, in growing up, it's like my dad would take time to have fun and that family values transferred over. And I found out that it's a very biblical ideal to have fun. Plan on having fun with your spouse. If it's not a Friday, maybe it's sometime in the year. You plan maybe a couple getaways. Um, You know, for Leslie and I, we try to spend each year, we kind of try to up the ante where last year we spent two to three days away, just her and I. And we would go out and, you know, I have a, a pastor's retreat out in California every year called Refresh in the Desert. Palm Springs, kind of a fun place. And uh, we go up there and we just take a couple times, we add, you know, uh, personal with uh, ministry work and we take a couple extra nights and we just spend together. And it's in those kind of those 
rhythms of creating fun in our relationship that somehow it seems to sustain through all the hard work. Those of you guys who are young married and you're building your families, you're like builders. You're in one of the most stressful seasons of your life right now. And if you don't slow down and have fun, you're going to miss the opportunity to kind of slow down and smell the roses. Enjoy what's going on. Slow down and enjoy the age and the season that your marriage is in and your, your kids are in. Plan on having fun. That's been a huge, huge encouragement for Leslie and I over the years. In the Proverbs, it says it's a joyful heart. That means it's a happy heart. Everybody say happy heart. You need to have a happy heart. You need to understand that a happy heart, a joyful heart is like medicine in your marriage. And you got to ask yourself, what really brings joy or happiness into our marriage? I mean, theologically speaking, uh, the, the writers of the Westminster Catechism set, answered this question. The catechisms are truths in which we learn over time. And, and they, they wrote this. They asked the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the big purpose in life? And the response is, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You have a fundamental need of having fun together in your marriage. And if you neglect that, you will, this, the glass will always be half empty. The sky's always falling. And you're missing out on the opportunity that you have to enjoy life. Sometimes we can settle for endure life. But there is an opportunity by God's resources to enjoy everything that he's given us. Number two, second great way to strengthen your marriage is dig the complexity. Let's say that together. Dig the complexity. What I mean by that is I mean literally God's fashioned and formed your spouse. She's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. And some of you are like, amen, he is one of a kind. In such a unique way, literally, the, the human experience is, is each fingerprint's unique. There's not one another in, out of 8 billion people in the world. There, each person has a unique voice print. You know, you are literally, the Bible says you're uniquely made. You're made in God's image. And your spouse is, there's like no other like that person. Um. This is what the psalmist says. This is a paraphrase out of New Living Transition, uh, Translation. Uh, the psalmist David says, Thank you for making me, and I put in parentheses, and especially my spouse, so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. The Psalm King David wrote this Hebrew po poetry. He's talking about the one-of-a-kind aspect in which God created your spouse. And we're to dig the complexity. A lot of times what we can do is go, man, you're so complex. You have so many different sides of you. You get frustrated and you can resign and easily begin to drift emotionally. Recently, there was a book that came out, well, in years past. It's called uh, The Five Love Languages. You guys ever heard of that? The Five Love Languages. This is what helped me understand this digging the complexity. There's five love languages that each person literally has. It means how they experience love. The first would be acts of service. 
Uh, this would be, you know, for Leslie, she, this is her love language. When I clean up around the house, help out around the tra- house, I take out the trash, I, you know, take Maya potty in the middle of the night or whatever I, to help her, you know, she's in diaper training right now, or not diaper training, potty training. She's trying, we're trying to get rid of the diapers. And she's doing pretty good, you know. This, this week she's been going and she's been like, you know, she's got, she, over the course of the week, you know, she's had two accidents and, you know, dad comes in, middle of the night, we got to wake up, take her to the restroom, all that stuff, and she's getting proud of herself. You know, she's four years old. Some of you are like, you don't know Maya, you're like, how old is your daughter? You know. Okay. This is kind of one of those off Sundays for me right now, no. Love you guys. All right. Acts of service, uh, serving your spouse, okay? Serving your spouse. The second one would be just physical touch. You know, I think, you know, for me, this is one of those. I love, I love hugs. I love to, uh, you know, hold hands with Leslie. This is one of my love languages. Um, Leslie is acts of service. She wants to be served. She wants to be help around the house. I believe this is probably one of the most um, unique ones for many of the young families in our church because they are busy raising kids, busy starting companies, busy building families. Another one's words of affirmation. You know, they want to hear, "Hey, you're good at," and you fill in the blank. You're good at, you know. Uh, you're good at work. You're good at the way you treat people. You're good at the way you love and you affirm your kids, or you're good at this. You know, fill in the blank. Words of affirmation. Another one could be gifts. Another one could be quality time. But for me, as a husband, literally, there's been times where I've been kind of like overwhelmed because these love languages, uh, Gary Smalley is the author of the book called Five Love Languages. I encourage you to get the book. Um, there's been times where I've been overwhelmed at the complexity because there's seasons of life where it seems like Leslie's love languages have shifted. You know, where once it was physical touch, now it's acts of service. But the psalmist says, you know, we're, we're wonderfully made and that we're to serve one another and we're to care for one another. And we're, we're like, literally, we have to kind of get into this rhythm of learning how the complexities of life and the seasons of life that we learn to appreciate those differences and serve each other in those differences. You guys ever seen the movie Shrek, where Donkey and, and Shrek are having this conversation, and there's all this bickering and fighting going on, I think Donkey says something like, you know, Shrek, you're like an onion. You got a lot of layers. You know, there's a lot of layers to you. And I was thinking about that this morning, is, is that's kind of the complexity of, the, of your spouse. There's a lot of layers there. It's a lot of complexity. And what you can do is, if you're not careful, you can kind of walk into this cynical mindset where you're just like, you're, you're too hard. You flip-flop all the time. There's too many layers. But the Bible portrays that as something incredibly beautiful, something amazing. And so it's our responsibility, guys, is to dig the complexity, to actually enjoy that. Number three, Husbands, honor the wife. Honor your wife. First Peter says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Let's say that together. An understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm going to unpack a lot of those phrases right there. And in fact, I wrote a devotional series 
well, this one verse for, over th- for three days. So if you subscribe to the North Valley Daily Devotions, I'm going to unpack 1 Peter 3, 7 over the course of three days on how to show honor. Showing honor means to regard or respect highly. It means that you value the person. So gentlemen, you honor your wife by, showing, by regarding her, by respecting her greatly. It's interesting because Peter writes within a Greek-Roman culture where Aristotle was the Greek philosopher who had this kind of mindset that women were not to be highly regarded in any other realm except for in the bedroom. And so Peter is kind of fighting this cultural perception that women absolutely are to be valued. They're to be highly respected, highly honored. Peter's writing in a chauvinistic, male-driven society to help bring balance to the understanding of the very imago Dei, the image of God, that God created man and woman to be equal in value, yet very different in role and responsibilities. And he says to the men, show honor. Peter's point is that we're to honor our spouses, gentlemen. Three ways to do that. I think specifically there's emotional You honor your wife emotionally by saying an understanding way that makes sense. You honor her in a way that makes sense to her. You literally bend your thinking, bend your uh, understanding on how you can show honor and care and appreciation, respect and regard for her by maybe learning her love language, by seeking to serve her. Specifically for Leslie and I, three ways that I honor Leslie emotionally because her love language is Uh, quality time and acts of service, we do a couple of things. First would be this is what we call tea time at my household. That means every day around 5.30 when I get off work, uh, I know that Leslie's, I mean, we're kind of old-fashioned, but we're young. Uh, She sits on this rocking chair that we bought at Cracker Barrel, and we got two of them, and she sits there, and she waits on me, and she's got my tea ready. Now, it's something, you don't have to get tea, but, you know, we, we just, I'm from the South, so we drink sweet tea, and we watch our kids play in the streets and, you know, yell at the cars that are driving too fast, slow down, you know, no, they, but, they, you know, the cars are driving, and, and, and so we tell the kids, watch out, but we're sitting on the porch, and we have tea time, you know, I gripe, she gripes, she cries, I'll cry, she laughs, I laugh. And it's a time to kind of emotionally kind of connect. I'll share about my day. She shares about her day. And we do that every day. And honestly, the good news is, is I know it's about 15 minutes because that's about how long it takes to drink the tea. And, and then we're, we're ready to go. We can do something else. Tea time for us is a big deal to emotionally slow down and honor Leslie. Clean up. A second one is a way for Leslie and I to do that. She has a song that she sings when she's cleaning the house. She says, clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere, clean up, clean up. I, and I found out it was actually Barney that did it, not, not, not Leslie. I told her that the other day. I was like, that song is so brainwashing, you know. She's like, I was like, but it's biblical. It's biblical. I should serve. I get it. I was like, you did a good job on it. She's like, baby, Barney wrote that. It's like, awesome. Thanks, Barney. Helping me love my wife emotionally. Family Sabbath is another way for Leslie and I to, to, for me to honor my wife. Uh, for her and I, we take 
time out of every single week where we'd get about a 24-hour period. Literally, guys, I'll unplug um, from the phone, Facebook, all that stuff as much as I can, you know, just honor my wife. Um, guys, a lot of times what, the, what your wife is saying is that you're not listening is because you're distracted. And if you would just take time to honor her and honor the family, how about honor the Lord with your time? Reserve some time. Uh, the idea of Sabbath is that you break your regular routine of work and you let time to allow to rest and renew and be restored. So for us, we, we, we take that time to just uh, have a time where we kind of unplug, slow down, enjoy the family together, and uh, just, just focus on encouraging and serving one another. Another way to do it is just physically. Uh, physically, you know, it's emotionally. Guys, how can you honor your spouse physically when Peter says the weaker vessel, he's phys- what's, what he's saying is that basically, guys, you're stronger your wife's not going to 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 win very likely uh, in an arm wrestling competition against you. You know, um, for those of you that got wives that can whoop you, you know, wow, okay. But Peter says you need to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. In other words, like if you're going to get in a UFC cage fight match, you're probably going to win. So you need to learn how to honor her in a physical way. You don't use your strength to, to uh, dominate or domineer. You don't use your strength to bow up on your spouse. You're, you're delicate, you're tough, but you're tender. For, for me, looking at how do I honor Leslie physically means that I never threaten her with my, my physical strength, ever. It's unacceptable. Men, if you do that, you're, you're a domineering man. You should confess and repent. And you're using your physical strength to overpower her. And it will not bring honor by any means to your marriage. Some practical ways in which you can honor your spouse, just be lock the doors at night. You know, if she's afraid, uh, you, you go lock the doors. You know, when you're in bed and you hear a noise, you don't just... Whack your wife in the ribs and say, go find out what that is. Um, so, you, you know, when it's dark, walk her to the car. Maybe guys work out. Maybe eat healthy. Take out the trash. Unload the groceries. Do the heavy lifting. Honor your wife. Honor your wife physically, emotionally, spiritually. Spiritually, it means, guys, it talks about being in... Uh, sharing as an error in the grace of life. Peter sees uh, the, the husband and the wife as co-equal. Co-equal in the inheritance, not only in the uh, eternal blessings, but in the earthly blessings of having the great opportunity to parent children. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. Men, how do you honor your wife spiritually? You take the lead. You serve her. You realize that she's just as valuable as you are. You esteem and you respect her. For me, ways that I am able to help Leslie honor her spiritually is I make sure that our family has good access to Bibles and biblical resources. I take the family to church. I say, hey, this is the kind of family we're going to go to church. You know, out of uh, each week, you know, we're working 40 plus hours a week. We've got all sorts of information pumping into our minds. And then we'll take one 
day out of a week where we're going to go to church, we're going to hear biblical preaching and teaching, we're going to listen to what God's Word has to say, and we're going to orient our lives around that. Maybe you book a marriage retreat, men, to honor your wife spiritually. Maybe you take the time and the opportunity to say, hey, in a given calendar year, I'm going to take a couple, uh, I'm going to take a couple hundred bucks and I'm going to invest it into our marriage for this weekend. Or maybe you join a neighborhood group where there's other godly couples to encourage and exhort and to pray for you. Or maybe it's taking that family Sabbath where you rest. You honor your wife spiritually. Number four, wives, you respect your man. These are essential ways in which you're going to strengthen the marriage. This is by God's design. It says in Ephesians 5.33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's all say respect together. Respect. That is huge. Ladies, probably the greatest way that you can show respect to your husband is, is, is by noticing him, honoring him, regarding him, deferring to him, encouraging him, admiring him. You know, there's a book uh, that the Driscoll family wrote, Mark and Grace Driscoll. Uh, they're uh, new friends of mine here in the Phoenix Valley. They wrote a book called Real Marriage. And in that book, there's a, there's a chapter called The Respectful Wife. And Grace Driscoll wrote it. So ladies, another uh, lady who's learning how to be a respectful wife uh, wrote this chapter. And she talks about in the book the, the, the head of respect, the hands of respect, and the hearts of respect. To respect your wife, it means that you literally have a mentality that your mind is a respectful mind of your husband. That means that you, when he makes a bad decision, you don't think in your mind all the time, well, he always makes dumb, dumb decisions and I'm going to have to fix all his bad decisions. How you think about your husband matters and will determine how you respect him. A head of respect cares about him and realizes that God's placed him in your life. And he, while everybody makes mistakes, nobody's perfect. He's a person in progress, and he's to be valued and honored and regarded and cared for. Hands of respects. That means literally, ladies, that you would pray for your husband, that you would serve your husband, that you would open your Bible with your hands and pray, God, give me the, the, the understanding on how to respect my husband according to your word. That you hold him and you care for him with your hands. Your hands are, should be hands of respect. Lastly, you would have a heart of respect. That you don't joke about him, his lack of abilities, or you don't cut him down with the kids around. But your heart, the Bible says that the heart is the wellspring of life. And that it also says that the heart is deceitful. So your heart will play tricks on you. And you've got to understand that your heart has got to be harnessed by the word of God. And you have to, to serve your husband and respect your man. You've got to understand that you've got to yield yourself ultimately first to God and then to your spouse and encourage him, admonish him. To respect literally means that you notice him. When he does good, you notice. You highly regard him. You look for the things that are good, and we're going to get to that, and that you defer to him. When there's big decisions to be made, God's made it and designed it where he's to be the head of the household. And what does that look like? That means that he's a servant leader. 
and you mutually respect each other, you mutually love each other. But as a wife, you respect and you defer to him. You ask him in big decisions. And for our household, uh, financial decisions can be a source of conflict. If Leslie makes a decision that's a significant financial uh, decision and she doesn't consult me, that's disrespectful. And I'll tell her, sweetie, we have a budget. We set a budget and then we talk about what, how we spend. And Leslie's always been good and honorable in, in seeking out my wisdom and before we make big decisions together. And that helps so much. Respect your man, ladies. Um, Sarah Beekman's a gal in our church. Uh, she's a wonderful gal, and she actually wrote uh, a devotional that you, you guys, it's uh, available for all of you, about how to respect your husband. And I want to encourage you to, to uh, read that this week. Number five, how do you strengthen the marriage as you confess sin? Let's all say that together. Confess sin. This is so crucially important. Every marriage has sin, and if you don't confess it, you're not going to get any better. You're like walking around wounded and hurting each other, but if you don't confess sin, you'll never find healing. The Bible says in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. To confess your sin literally means that you admit you did something wrong. This is how not to confess. Hey, I'm really sorry if that hurt you. That's not how you do that. You say, hey, I'm really sorry I hurt you and how I did that. I'm sure that made you feel, oh, they love it when you do this, guys. I'm sure that made you feel unloved. Because literally, when we hurt each other, we feel uh, oftentimes for the, uh, when, the, when the wife is hurt, she feels greatly unloved. When the man is hurt, he oftentimes feels greatly disrespected. And so what's really important, and I'm telling you, if I had to say one thing that has changed my family and my marriage is this confession of sin. For me, I try to always keep short accounts. I have no uh, attitude or mindset that I actually make it a single day without sinning. I mean, think about it. Do you? The Bible says, honor the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't do that every day. Neither do you. There's not a day that goes by that you don't sin against God or you don't sin against somebody. And the longer you go around with this pent-up sin that hasn't been confessed, it begins to deteriorate your spiritual life and your relational life. And the Bible says you've got to confess that stuff so that you can be healed. And when you do that in your marriage, it gives the opportunity for there to be a closer intimacy, a closer relationship. It says that, you, that we're to pray together that you may be, find healing. When you confess, it's like you're admitting you did something wrong and you can't find healing until you confess that problem. Uh, a few years ago, Sam and I were in Arkansas and we were at my dad's house and he's got this big cabin and a three-story cabin and you know lots of fun. We've got guns and knives and we get to hunt and fish and we just have so much fun. Sam was about probably about eight years old 
And he went downstairs and he saw some of the knives. And, um, you know, as an eight-year-old kid, he said, Dad, I really like this. I want to play with this. And I'm like, it's a knife. You're eight years old. You got to be real careful. Put it up. So he put it up. And then I walk upstairs and I come back downstairs and I see Sam walking around like this. And I said, what's wrong? And he opens his mouth and he had blood coming out of his mouth. And I said, oh my goodness, what happened? What happened to your mouth, Sam? And he said, well, I cut my finger, but I wanted to hide it from you, so I stuck it in my mouth. Here's the reality is, uh, so many of us can be like Sam, where we hurt ourselves, and we're terrified to tell somebody, because we know that it's embarrassing, it's shameful, we know we've done something wrong, and we can make a fool of ourselves if we walk around for long periods of time, having wounded not only ourselves, but wounded other people. And we don't say, hey, I admit I did something wrong, and it's going to hurt. The only way that I could actually help Sam is if he confessed it to me that he did something. So I took him into the uh, uh, bathroom, bandaged up his finger, gave him all the ointment, and he's good to go. The Bible says that if you don't confess your sin, then you're not going to find healing in your marriage. So if you don't have this routine at your household where you apologize and you say, hey, please forgive me for that. It was wrong. It was sinful. Then here's what I'm telling you. There's a very good likelihood that you're walking around wounded and hurt and you'll look foolish in your marriage and you won't grow and the full healing and restoration that God wants to do in that. And when you allow, when you go according to God's plan, you find yourself stronger. Um, You find yourself more whole when you allow God to, uh, you surrender how you do marriage together. And so not only do you confess sin, but you also, the Bible says, is that we're to forgive sin. Now this is huge. You can go around confessing sin all day long, but if the other person doesn't forgive your sin, and sin is anything that uh, is, is, is not in line with God's moral character and nature. It's doing anything wrong that you know either in, in uh, commission, meaning it's something you do, or it's something omission that you don't do, that you should have done. The Bible says that we're to forgive sin. Colossians 3.13 says this, Make an allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. If, gentlemen, uh, you need to make an allowance for your spouse when she sins against you. Ladies, you need to make an allowance for your spouse that when he sins against you, he hurts you, he does something wrong, there's an allowance there, and you forgive. This is the very Christian relationship opportunity for you to model the gospel. The F word in the relationship is forgiveness. That's the big, powerful word in your marriage that you hold on to and you say, I forgive you. Or when the person comes to you and confesses, you say, I've already forgiven you. Those words of forgiveness have got to flow in the marriage. 
Because the truth be known is every single one of you guys has blown it or messed up in some area of your marriage. You're human. I'm human. And the opportunity is, is ladies, that you can come beside him and say, I made a covenant commitment to the Lord and to my spouse. I forgive him in the name of Christ. And you extend that forgiveness. You make an allowance for that. You literally got to build that in. If you, your kids get allowance, literally you got to build that into your budget to pay them every week. So in a very much a, a spiritual sense, you as a spouse, when somebody harms against you, they've incurred a debt in a sense that you've created an allowance that it's paid for, like it's done. And you look to the cross and say, this is what Jesus died for, sinners. And the Colossians says, remember the Lord forgave you. So Paul's writing and saying, remember that the, how the Lord forgave you. That's how you forgive others, especially your spouse. You make an allowance for that. You forgive sin. Each week at North Valley, we take communion. That's an opportunity to remember that Christ forgave you. That means all the marital problems that you have, all the problems that you've created, you need to remember that Christ forgave me. Therefore, I can forgive Number seven, a helpful way to really strengthen the marriage is that you make a good list. A lot of you make lists all the time about what your husband or what your wife doesn't do. And then you usually don't write it down, but you've got it stored up in your mind. And every time you get into an argument or a disagreement, it's like a history lesson. Do you remember when you did this, 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 and this? Oh, I'm starting to see a pattern here. And you've got this mental list. And what Paul tells us in Philippians, he says this, this is how you ought to act, husbands and wives. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. When it, uh, when it comes to your spouse, you need to think of the good things that they have done on a regular basis. You know, one of the things that can really kill a marriage is a negative interpretation of your spouse. You're always thinking what your spouse did wrong. And that can wear out anybody. It's no fun to be around that. But we ought to take proactive responsibility to, to channel our minds and our mindset towards our spouse. Uh, recently, Leslie did this. She made a list. Literally, she had this little sticky note, and she said, hey, um, can you sit down for a minute? And I was like, uh-oh, am I in trouble? And she said, no, 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 everything's fine. I want to read you this list that I wrote. And I thought, what is this? And she said, you know, I just got this idea. I was reading in the Bible, and it talked about focusing on all the, the wonderful things. I want to slow down. One of my love languages is words of affirmation. She says, here, here, here's the things that you've been doing that are really wonderful. And man, I walked away. I felt like He-Man. I was like, I'm ready to go. This is awesome. What do you need me to do around the house? I'll serve you. What do you want? I was like, just tell me. I want to serve you. Guys, make a good list. Ladies, make a good list. You, by default, will drift towards making that bad list. You'll do that day in and day out. You know, um, Leslie, I wrote a list for you. And so, you know, the Bible says, what is 
finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true. I thought, for my wife, Leslie seeks God's word. That's true. She's noble in that she keeps, she really works hard at keeping Maya's family together. We adopted a beautiful little girl. She's four years old. And it's a very noble thing. And what Leslie does is that she really works hard at trying to keep the siblings together so Maya doesn't grow up not knowing her siblings in the city. She's right in that she's generally, when the Bible says whatever's right, you know, think about those things. I thought for my wife, Leslie, is that she, her parenting strategies are good. Every time I think about a parenting strategy, I'm like, man, Leslie has got a good parenting strategy. When it comes to lovely, I thought, well, Leslie's looks are lovely. Admirable, she's got a strong work ethic. Excellent, she, I love the way she keeps the home. Praiseworthy, she has a long, a strong love for family and fun. Guys, I did that because I want you to do that. Ladies, I'm encouraging you to make a good list. Make one for your spouse on a very regular basis. And then share those things. Because here's the beauty. When you do that, it's, very, it's scientifically proven. When you affirm those things and you celebrate the things that go right, they're going to get repeated again. So when you say to your husband, hey, I love the way you take out that trash. He's going to be like, yeah, I'll take out that trash. I'll take it out tomorrow night, the next night. People will, will, will repeat whatever's celebrated. And, you know, the Bible says, hey, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, you know, think about those things. Those are the things that you ought to think about. Number eight, I'm going to encourage you to declare the covenant. You've got to see your marriage not as a contract, a 50-50 deal, but it's 100%. And you made it to the Lord. The Bible talks about this in Ephesians. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That means when a husband and a wife come together, it's like a brand new person all together. It's a brand new family. It's a brand new name. The mystery is profound, Paul says. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's a covenant commitment that you make. That you hold on to your marriage. And anytime there's conflict, let me encourage you to do this. That in there's a strong conflict, I'd encourage you, number one, is never use the word divorce. That'll deteriorate all trust. It'll hurt and make the spouse feel greatly unloved and disrespected. Don't say that. And if you say the word divorce, you confess it and say, I confess that's wrong. That's damaging our covenant and our commitment. But you understand that your marriage is a reflection of Christ in, in the church and how he died for the church and how he loves the church. And marriage is not just a contract that you make and it's a deal. It's a very act of worship that you're honoring God that the two become one. You're coming together and literally if you're going to, when it says become the one flesh, it's this idea that you're coming together and that if anybody took you apart, it would be like you're, you're being ripped in half. And that's why divorce hurts so bad. It's because there's a piece of you that's still over here. So declare the covenant. Every time there's an argument, every time there's a fight, every time it gets bad, you say, I will always be with you. Even though we're going through a really hard time right now, I want you to know that we will work this out, that I will not leave. I would never divorce you. I'm going to work this out by God's grace and by God's strength because it's a covenant. Amen?
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have a covenant to us. And I pray, God, in this time, in our closing, Lord, that many of us have been unruly, and we may even stand in a realm where we feel like maybe we're unforgivable. But Lord, we thank you for your grace that you forgive and that you have an unrelenting love and a commitment to us and you're a covenant maker, a covenant keeper. And I pray, God, that we would experience that forgiveness here this morning as we take communion. Lord, that we would confess our sins to you that may have violated and hurt the marriage in any area. And then we take that communion and remember the forgiveness that you give. And we experience forgiveness for ourselves. Lord, give us boldness and confidence as we face the weak. And Lord, I pray for my friends here today that they would take the opportunities to dig into your word and learn what it means to serve their spouse. We thank you for this time today. We pray that you would use this time of worship to encourage us and edify us as, uh, as married couples. And thank you for this church. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.